I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 21 through 39 to start with. We're going to stop, break that section down, and then we'll go into the rest of the chapter. Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 and following. It says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is, not yet, the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will in return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay, attention, pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Now we're going to stop here. We'll take some more time and later time of our study night to cover the rest of the verses. But I want to kind of stop right here and break this down for us a little bit. When you were together last time, you're, if you were remembering our history that we were doing, and we're going to do a little bit more history at the beginning of our study and a lot of scripture at the end. So get ready to go here. Last time we were together, we saw that Seleucus IV had been killed by Heliodorus. Remember, he had sent Heliodorus down to Israel to collect taxes, and then Heliodorus came back and poisoned him and killed him. Now on the scene comes another ruler of the northern kingdom of Syria. Now, 
This guy wouldn't be that interesting in the annals of history except for how he treated the Jews. And this is the one that we're going to be looking at that's been referred to here, Antiochus Epiphanes. His name is Antiochus IV, and he wasn't the next natural successor to the throne. Others were actually in line ahead of him, but Antiochus Epiphanes hurried back from Athens when he heard of his brother Seleucus' death, and he worked with one of his nephews, also named Antiochus, to gain control of the Syrian kingdom and keep it out of the hand of Heliodorus. Now, he co-ruled with his nephew for five years until his nephew was murdered. Now, historians will even point out that a lot of people at that time thought that maybe Antiochus had something to do with his nephew being murdered. And so, even though he wasn't popular and really had no right to the throne, he saw himself as somebody important and did whatever he needed to do and said whatever he needed to say to remain in power. Go back again and look at verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now, he has snuck into power in Syria. Again, he came in to help his nephew. His nephew all of a sudden dies. He's now in charge. And he wins some battles. He won some military battles. And he even defeated, the, as we just read here, defeated the prince of the covenant. Most likely, this is referring to Onias III, who was the high priest of Israel at that time. And Onias III was put to death by Antiochus IV. Now, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, didn't want Onias III in the position of high priest because he had a bent toward the Ptolemies of Egypt and Antiochus IV wanted Onias' brother, Jason, in power because Jason preferred the, Syrian and, uh, preferred the Syrians and the adoption of Greek culture in Israel. He had also, Jason had, already promised a much higher annual tribute to be paid to Antiochus IV. And so remember, Antiochus IV, who is Antiochus Epiphanes, is ruler in Syria at that time. At this time, Israel's under the control of the northern kingdom. And Antiochus IV saw the position of the high priest in Israel as more of a political position and, uh, instead of a religious one. And thereby, he felt he could appoint whoever he wanted. Well, this didn't make him very popular with the religious people in Israel. But through his deceit, he became even more powerful. Now, Antiochus IV would go on, if you see in verses 24 through 26, he'd go into wealthy areas like Israel and plunder them, and then share the spoils with the poorer areas in order to gain their favor. Look at verses 24 through 26 again. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So, like we said, he would go into richest parts of the area that he ruled, mainly Israel, plunder them, and then take some of the spoil and spread it around to the poorer areas to get votes. Kind of like... If I promise to give you money, you'll vote for me. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? All right. Epiphanes would attack then the southern kingdom of Egypt, as we just read, and have a military victory. Now, during that time, he'd set up a rival Ptolemy ruler using a brother of the existing Ptolemy. On your list that we gave you of the leaders, we didn't go that far. But at this point, there was a Ptolemy Philometor, and he set up 
Phikson, his brother, to be a, ruler, a, a, a co, if you will, or a competing Ptolemy ruler in Egypt. His purpose, Antiochus' purpose, was that, that he would hope that that would cripple the southern kingdom. Both the northern and southern kingdoms would sit down at peace talks, but all they would do is lie to each other. Does that sound familiar with what's going on over there nowadays still, too? Over the years, those of us who have ever been watching what's going on in the Middle East and all that, they'll always have peace talks, but they don't want peace. And they'll come and say whatever they think they need to say politically in front of the cameras, but they never get anything accomplished because all they're really doing is sitting at the table and lying to each other. Well, look at verses 27 and 28. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So they have these quote-unquote peace talks, and nothing happens. So Antiochus IV goes back to Syria through Israel, and he stopped long enough to plunder the temple and kill a lot of people. Now the next verses, in verses 29 through 35, are going to talk about how Antiochus IV Many years later, attempts another attack on Egypt, but this time Rome intervenes and tells him to go home to Syria. So let's look at verses uh, where we just left off here, verses 29 through 35. And so it says here, And at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south. This is many years later. But it shall not be this time as it was before. Remember, before he had the victory. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Now, I'm going to stop for a second, and I'm going to show you who the ships of Kittim are. Put a bookmark here in your, in your Bible in Daniel. Go with me to Genesis chapter 10. The ships of Kittim are actually referring to the armies of Rome. And I can take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, and look at verses 4 and 5. In Genesis 10, verse 4, it says, The sons of Javan, or Elisha, Tarshish, what's the next one? Kittim and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their, in their nations. If you do a study of history and what the scriptures lay out for us, Kittim is in the area of Rome. And so the ships of Kittim came and said, go home. So here he comes to attack the southern kingdom of Egypt again, but he doesn't have the military victory that he had before. And the Romans send him back and say, no more of this. Don't do any more of this. Embarrassed and angry, and he goes out and takes it out on the people of Israel once again. Remember when he had the victory in the, against the southern kingdom, he went back, plundered the, the temple, killed some people, and then went back. This time he goes enraged. We're going to read the verses again from the scripture, and then I'll kind of explain them to you. Again, verse uh, 30, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, back in Daniel chapter 11, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. 
When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Like I said, embarrassed and angry, Antiochus Epiphanes, being told by Rome to go back to Syria, goes to the, turns on the people of Israel, especially those who resist him because of their worship of their God. He tries to completely remove Judaism from Israel. That's what he tries to do at this point. He doesn't want any more Judaism. He tries to fully Hellenize the country. Greek deities were to be worshipped by all. And he even tried to say that Jehovah God that the Jews worshipped was the same thing as Jupiter, that they were the same God. It's like some people tell you, try to say that Jehovah God and Allah are the same. They're not. But he said that Jupiter was the same. And he had an image of Jupiter. Some people say, if you do a little research, you'll find some people think that the face on this image of Jupiter looked like Antiochus Epiphanes himself. He had that put up in the temple. Pigs were sacrificed on the altars. Jews were forbidden to circumcise their children, or follow Sabbath laws, or celebrate Jewish feasts. Copies of the Jewish scriptures were destroyed. All of this, by the way, is historical stuff. You can go and research and find it all happened. But as you're about to see, it's a picture of what is to come in Israel in the days and the years to come. And a lot of this stuff parallels almost exactly. The Bible tells us that the Antichrist is going to set up in the temple an image of himself, one that comes to life. And the false prophet's going to cause the world to worship him. And we're going to get into some of that stuff tonight. But listen closely. This prophecy here also told us of what we already know has happened, that within Israel there were two very distinct groups at this time. Those who sided with Antiochus IV and those who sided with God and his word. Many righteous people died as a result of this. But this process had the effect of purifying Israel. There was a clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm going to just say something real quick that I, I want you to hear. In a weird way, as the world gets worse, I kind of like it. That sounds crazy. First off, the Bible said it was going to happen. But secondly, when everything's going good, it's easy for a lot of people to pretend to be Christians and play the game. But when trouble like this comes, a clear distinction between those who are his and those who aren't is going to be very noticeable. And that makes my job a lot easier. I'm not preaching to people that are faking it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to be preaching to people who are for real. Because there's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who are going to just say, hey, let's just agree and just go along with it. And those who are saying, no, let's stand for what God says, even if we be killed. And that's what happened in Israel. And as we saw, they were purified through this process. By the way, 2 Peter, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 says that these trials have come to prove our faith genuine. And so my prayer is that as things continue to get worse in this world, and they will, that you would be even stronger in your walk with the Lord. Now, before we move on to the verses pointing to the future Antichrist, verses 36 and following that we've read already a portion of them, they're actually talking about the future Antichrist. So I'm going to show you the break between chapter verse 35 and verse 36. But before we move on to the verses pointing to the future Antichrist, we also have to notice that because there's a jump in this prophecy from Antiochus Epiphanes all the way to the false prophet, sorry, the, 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 false Ant the Antichrist and the false Christ, people say, well, where's the church age and all this stuff? Well, 
you remember how in the beginning of our looking at the kings in this prophecy, there were eight kings in Persia that weren't even mentioned because they had no real effect over Israel. This prophecy is dealing with Israel and their land and what's to happen to them during the 490 years that have been prophesied for them. During the church age, God's put Israel on hold. He's doing a new thing, and we're a part of what he's doing. He's wanting to make Israel jealous through what he's doing with us, but he's going to take us out of here and then finish that last seven-year period. And so just like those eight Persian kings really had no consequence over Israel, and they weren't mentioned in the prophecy, we too aren't mentioned here because we're going to be gone when he does what happens next. But in verses 36 through 39 of the ones we've read, plus verses 40 and following, we move on to the still-to-be-fulfilled prophecy about the one who, they, who Antiochus Epiphanes was a picture of. We know that verse 36 starts talking about someone other than any of the kings that we have been uh, looking at here in our study. Because if you never notice, it would say the king of the north or the king of the south. But notice the wording here in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. Well, which king? All of a sudden, it doesn't talk about north king or south king. It's just the king. And on top of that, we know this because also of Hebrew sentence structures and because what's said here on, from these verses on, doesn't match anyone in history as all the other verses so specifically did. We spent a lot of time in our last study in the beginning of this one with me doing a lot of historical accounts and showing you this happened and that happened and showing you how these verses in the prophecy literally were fulfilled. But if you do a study, you'll realize that what happens in verse 36 on, not only does the sentence structure show that something's changed, on top of that, there's no historical evidence of any of this stuff happening yet. And it hasn't. Because as prophecy does... If you're not careful to study it, from one verse to the next, all of a sudden you're talking about a different time period. I've said this before, but some of you might not have heard it. Jesus goes into his hometown of Nazareth. If you go double check me in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, he goes into his hometown of Nazareth and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens it to the section we know as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he begins to read it. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Is anointing me to preach good news to the poor, open the eyes of the blind, and so on. And then he reads that he's going to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops reading in the middle of a sentence. He rolls it up and he sits down and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But if you, if you knew the scripture, you'll sit there going, Jesus, you didn't read the rest of the verse. You go look at Isaiah 61 verse 2 and it says, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. It's very clear the sentence hadn't finished. But how come Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing? Well, we hopefully understand that Jesus came the first time to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the time period of salvation and grace. When he comes again will be the day of vengeance of our God. So would you not agree that the first half of that verse was talking about one time period? And the second half of the same verse is talking about a totally different time period, at least 2,000 years later? Then we should have no problem with the fact that verse 35 is talking about one person. Verse 36 jumps to a whole different time period. Do you understand? All right. Now, the prophecy here in these verses doesn't match any of the descriptions of history of kings that followed after Antiochus Epiphanes, but... It does match descriptions of the future Antichrist that, as you're going to see tonight, are written in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17, and Daniel chapter 7. It matches those prophecies exactly. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 said, This king will do as he wills, even blaspheming God and all gods. Well, go to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go back to doing Bible study the way I've always done Bible study. We're going to look at Scripture now. We've done our history study for the most of last study and part of this one. Now we get to open the Bible and look at how it explains itself. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So here we see that the prophecy said in verse 36, he's going to even blaspheme God and all gods, small g, and the prophecy here said that he's going to speak words against the Most High. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Look at verses 5 through 7. In Revelation 13 verses 5 through 7. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. By the way, there's the three and a half years again. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And that also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So here the prophecy shows us that this future coming Antichrist matches perfectly with the prophecy in verse 36. But there's more. Look at verse 37. Now I want you to look closely, and I want you to look closely at the translation that you may have, because how your Bible translates verse 37 will have a big play into how you interpret this future Antichrist's nationality. Look at what it says in verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. Now, some of your translations say the God, singular, of his fathers. I lean toward the correct translation to be God's plural, because the actual Greek here, sorry, not Greek, Hebrew, is plural. It should be translated gods of his fathers. I think personally some translators might have made it singular. 
because they were trying to make the Antichrist have to be a Jew. And it would make more sense if he was talking about the God of his fathers, being Jehovah, instead of the gods of his fathers. Now, there are some, there's great debate as to whether or not this coming Antichrist will be a Jew or not. Now, the short answer is, we don't know. Because the scripture says he won't be revealed until we're gone. But I also want to take some time to show you from scripture some things that the scripture says about the nationality of this person and help you at least be, don't get sucked into, well, the Jews would never accept anybody to be their coming Messiah unless he were a Jew. That sounds good, but let scripture talk to this. I just want to show you he could be a Jew, but he could not be. And I lean toward the fact that there's a strong chance he won't be. Again, from Scripture. Speculation, but from Scripture. All right? Like I said, some say that he'll have to be a Jew or the Jews wouldn't recognize him as their Messiah. Hold on to that. Go with me to Revelation chapter 13. Scripture says that he's going to arise out of a Gentile nation. Go to Revelation 13 and look at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now, hang on for a second, Jim. Where does it say that he'll come from Gentile nations? Does anybody see it there? He rises out of where? The sea. And if you've done the study of Revelation with us, you know that the sea always is referring to the Gentile nations. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 19 and 20. In Daniel 7, look at verses 19 and 20. Daniel says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater that than its companions. Now you say, well, where, where's this? Look closely again. This fourth beast was different from all the rest. It was exceedingly terrifying. It had teeth of iron, claws of bronze, and devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head. Let me, let me ask you this question. The first beasts were all what? Gentile nations. Remember? They were Gentile nations. The Babylon. Persia, Medo-Persia, Greeks, Romans. And this beast appears to be made up of a mixture of all the previous beasts, but it was terrifying, and you couldn't really describe what it was, but it was made up of parts of all the others. Again, it could be referring to he's coming from the Gentile nations. Not proven. There's, it doesn't matter which way you lean, because we're not going to know till he's revealed. But he still could be a Jew living in one of those Gentile nations, correct? Sure, we have Jews living in other nations. But we also have to keep in mind that when he comes on the scene, Israel will be in apostasy. They may not care if he's a Jew or not, as long as he's promising to help them, just like many did with Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember how we read how he went and there were those who sided with Antiochus Epiphanes and the ones that didn't, most of them were killed? Doesn't the Bible say that the Jews are going to sign a pact with this person? It doesn't have to be that they accept him 
He has to be a Jew. They may be at that point. Well, let's just be honest right now. The nation of Israel is sure proud of their Israeli heritage and their Zionness, but are they God-fearing and worshiping God? Not as a whole, no. They're more interested in political power and, and their prestige of their history and who they are than they are being God-fearers. Well, one day that's going to change, but there's a chance that it doesn't make a difference to them at that time, whether he's a Jew or not. The Bible then goes on and tells us that this Antichrist is going to be impressed with military might. And he'll honor a god of fortresses and will conquer with the help of a foreign god. By the way, you all do know which foreign god is helping him. Does anybody have any idea? I heard it. Very good. Satan. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verse 44. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was the murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. Remember how Antiochus Epiphanes was a picture of the coming Antichrist. How did Antiochus Epiphanes come into power? With flattery and with lies and deceit. This one's going to come on the world scene. And he's going to be a part of the ten kingdoms that are involved in this one world government. But he's going to supplant three of them. And in time, all the other kings are going to give their authority to him. And he's going to do it, according to the scriptures, with flattery. But we know who's empowering, because the scripture tells us in Revelation 13... Look at Revelation 13, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 7. Revelation 13, verse 2. And the beast that I saw, the one that just came out of the sea, was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Again, all those same parts that we had seen in the vision in Daniel of the Gentile nation. And to, the, to it, the dragon, remember dragon is Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Look at verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Look at verse 7. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. What's the power, the small g God that's empowering the Antichrist when he comes? Satan himself. The Bible then tells us here, if you go back to our prophecy about this one in Daniel chapter 11, look at verse 30. We'll start in verse 39. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and he shall divide the land for a price. Don't miss this. When he comes on the scene... Those who side with him, he's going to honor and reward with responsibility, and he's going to divide the land and give people authority over the land. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Why? Because he wants to be Jesus. He's going to mimic Jesus in many ways. 
As you've heard me teach when I taught on the book of Revelation, we know that God is just one God, but he's always manifested himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Satan is going to create his own evil trinity, where Satan is going to be the one behind the Antichrist, who's going to be representing Jesus. And the false prophet is going to be representing the Holy Spirit as they all work together. And the Bible clearly states that for those of us who are faithful and trust Jesus, when he comes back to set up his kingdom, he'll reward us. He says, behold, I'm coming soon and my reward, my recompense is with me. And we're going to be able to rule with him. And he's going to give us responsibility over lands and areas. And Satan is going to come on the scene and power the Antichrist. And he's going to act like Jesus. And he's just going to fool people. He's going to say, if you're with me, I'll reward you. And that's why it's important that we know the scriptures and know how to recognize truth from error. Jesus himself said that at this point, he's going to have so much power behind him from Satan that he's going to do miracles like you wouldn't believe and that he would be able to fool the elect if that were possible. Again, we're not going to be here, but we need to be telling our family and our friends and the people that are left behind, this is going to happen. Just like all the prophecy in the rest of chapter 10 and especially chapter 11 literally happened right up to verse 35 to the end of detail from verse 36 on will happen as well specifically. And we have to pass it on to people and let them know, oh, they may mock us. They may think we're crazy, but that's OK. I'm not worried about that because the Bible's very clear that God's word is true. And he says, just hold on. A little bit longer. I'm actually going to be preaching a series of messages in Galax, Virginia, coming up in a couple of weeks. And I'll do a whole series on endurance. And I just want to encourage you. I know some of you that are here tonight and some of you that are online, you're getting tired. You're getting a little weary. You're getting a little worn down. And I just want to encourage you. You'd be amazed as I've been doing my prep for this. The scriptures are full of messages to the church, especially in the last days. Hold on, hang on, hold on to your crown, Jesus says to the church and churches in Revelation. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 5 and following, he says, You have need of endurance. Galatians chapter 6 says, Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap if you don't give up. And I want to just say to you folks, it's going to get harder and harder, and there's going to be a distinction between those of us who follow God and those who don't. And one day he's going to come and take us to be with him. And all this stuff that we're reading about is going to happen to the world. Have you left this truth behind you? The book of Revelation that we're about to have published before the end of the year, Lord willing, in which I've taken the book of Revelation and broken it down into chronological order of how things are going to happen. And that book is going to be free and it's going to be available coming up before the end of the year. And the title of the book is What Will Happen Next? And one of the things God's been really impressing upon me is that this not only will be a helpful tool for the church to read and study, it's going to be a small, short, little book. It's not going to be so big that you're afraid of it. But I've also sensed that God is showing me that after we're gone, those copies of what will happen next will be laying all around. And I hope people will pick it up and read it and come to know Jesus because these things are going to happen. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 11 and look at verses 40 through 45. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him. By the way, have you noticed all of a sudden we're back to the king of the north and the king of the south. Now it's not jump back to time that we could look back historically. At the this tells us it's at the time of the end. The king of the south is going to come against 
him. This is the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. And he shall come into the glorious land. Do you know where that is? And that's the land of Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Listen, Edom will, Edom, sorry, Edom will be delivered. Moab will be delivered. And the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the, the countries. And the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great, great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This battle at the time of the end. Could be referring to Ezekiel 38 and 39? I don't think so. Zechariah 14? Not yet. Or Revelation 16? Not quite thinking that we're there yet. I think it'll be referred to briefly at the very end of our section we just read. The honest answer is we don't know, because again, this is prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled. But we can try to piece some things together from the context and other passages to try to speculate as to how this all may play out. And that's what I want to do for you at this time that we have left. The kings of the north and the kings of the south must still be speaking of Syria and Egypt. In the context, they were referring about the Syria and Egypt in the beginning. I think in the context, they're still referring to those in charge of Syria and Egypt, which nations still exist to this day. All right. Now, we see them both, though, attacking this king, the Antichrist. We see them attacking him at the same time, and the Antichrist defeats them, especially Egypt. Look at verses 42 and 43 again. It says, jump here, and he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But I want you to also notice though that Moab, Edom and the main part of the Ammonites are not under the Antichrist's control. That's interesting. Does anybody know where those places are right now? Jordan. The prophecy says that when this guy comes on the scene and nations come against him and he defeats them and he sets up his kingdom and well, at least part of his kingdom in Israel. He's not going to be able to defeat Jordan. Moab and Edom and part of the Ammonites. And that's interesting. Because if you know your prophecy and you know your scripture, if you remember what we've looked at in the book of Matthew and in the book of Revelation, What's the area that Jesus tells the Jews to go hide in when he steps into the temple? He tells them to run to the mountains, and we know that it's in the area of Edom. And as some would know, Petra. Listen to Matthew 24 again, verses 15 through 22. Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Remember, we've already read in 2 Thessalonians 4 also that he's going to step into the temple, declare himself to be God. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. 
Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days hadn't been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jump over to Revelation chapter 12. Look at verses 7 through 16. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. Just in case you were a little bit curious as to who the dragon was, they made it very, very clear. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Just like Jesus said, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. How long is that again? Three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, but sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Of course, then the dragon gets mad and he goes back to go after anybody at that time who believes in Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Go to Isaiah 63. As you know now, Jesus has told him when you see what was prophesied by Daniel happening, where the Antichrist is standing in the holy place, you better run. Jews, just run to the mountains. And as we saw in prophecy there in Revelation, they're going to be protected there for three and a half years. Well, the prophecy in actually in Isaiah 63 tells us that that's where Jesus actually comes back when he comes back to the earth first. He's going to eventually step foot on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two and the millennial kingdom will begin. But he comes first to where the Jews are in Edom, in Basra. Listen to Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he, his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. If you remember from Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, his garment is stained in blood, and all of us are coming with him. We're dressed in white, and we're not, we don't have any blood on us. Why? Because he's going to defeat them himself. But where is he going to be coming from when he comes to Israel and defeats everybody in the Battle of Armageddon? He's coming from Edom and Basra 
And the prophecy in Daniel chapter 11 told that when the Antichrist comes into power, northern kingdom of Syria, southern kingdom of Egypt are going to go after him. He's going to defeat him and especially attack Egypt at that time. But the area that God has planned to protect Israel, those who believe, will not be under his authority. Most likely the battles referred to here in these verses will take place in the beginning of the 70th week or the tribulation period. It's during this time that he'll appear to be Israel's savior as he sets up his military might in Israel. It, the prophecy said he would set his palatial tents in Israel. By the way, if you look at that Hebrew word tent, it means military tent of a general. By the way, don't be surprised that there's all this war going on at the beginning of the tribulation period. I thought people were going, but Jim, doesn't before the midpoint when he declares himself to be God and goes after Israel, and that's the real hard time, it wasn't the first time just peace and safety and security? No. The Bible actually said, Jesus himself has said all along, there was going to be wars going on even at the beginning of that time period. Go back to Matthew chapter 24 again. Look at verses 3 through 8 and look at what Jesus said when he was talking about the time of the birth pains or the time of Jacob's trouble. In Matthew 24, look at verses 3 and following, 3 through 8. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, that's the Antichrist, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but at the beginning of the birth pains. And if you've ever been a part of my study on this, I've shown you how in the Old Testament all the time, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, was referred to as a time of a woman in labor. Jesus said, this is just the beginning of the prophesied birth pains. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Actually, go with me to Revelation chapter 6. Look at what happens when Jesus begins to open the seals. There are some people that say, well, I think the first part of the tribulation period is the wrath of, of, of Satan. And the second half is the wrath of God. And, and, and we'll only be spared the wrath of God. No, no, no. The whole thing is the wrath of God. Who's opening the seals? Jesus. All right, look at Revelation 6, verses 1 through 4. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard... A sound, the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Did you see it? The first two seals are open. The Antichrist comes out pretending to be the Messiah. He comes and he's allowed to conquer. And then the second horse is released, the red horse, and he's allowed to kill a quarter of the earth. Allowed to take peace from the earth. Folks, there's going to be wars going on at the beginning of the tribulation period. And it's going to get even worse once you get to the midpoint. Now, at some point, after these initial military victories, he hears of a coming attack from the north and from the east. Notice that the prophecy here, go, to, go back to Daniel chapter 11, look at verse 44. Notice that the prophecy doesn't say kings anymore. Doesn't say the king of the north and the king of the south. Look at verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Now hang on for a second. I want you to stick with me here. 
This is an area where I may differ from a lot of prophecy teachers, but I, I, I'm going to come at it from, I don't have the time to lay it all out for you, especially with how much time we have left tonight. But I actually believe the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will begin around the midpoint of the tribulation period, ultimately culminating in the battle of Armageddon. I think that at the beginning, the Antichrist is going to have wars and people are going to attack him like we've seen, but he's going to have military victory. But at the midpoint, there's going to be an attack from the north. doesn't say the northern kings like the prophecy had said earlier. The north. And if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, God says, I'm going to gather you, Gog, from the north. And we also, as I'm about to show you from the scripture, we'll see in Revelation 16 that the great river Euphrates is going to be dried up to allow the kings from the east to come. I think the battle of Gog and Magog will begin at the, around the midpoint of the tribulation as this guy's come in and all of a sudden these other nations come to attack him and God is the one who defeats these armies that come against Israel at that time, showing the nation of Israel clearly that it was him all along that did, was taking care of them, not this Antichrist. And if you do a parallel study of Revelation 19 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll notice a couple of things couple that I'll point out to you tonight, you'll notice that the feast in Ezekiel 39 of the bird feast, where God says to all the birds, come and eat the flesh of generals and so on, matches almost word for word with the bird feast in, in Revelation 19 at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. They're the same. And if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, at the end of that battle, it says clearly that from that point forward, Israel worships God forevermore. If the battle of Gog and Magog happens before the tribulation period, as a lot of prophecy people try to make it happen, Israel's not going to worship God from that point forth from it forevermore because they're going to make a deal with the Antichrist for a while. And it won't be till the end of the tribulation period that they finally finish the transgression like we've already looked at from Daniel chapter 9. So I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Zechariah 14 and those all are going to start happening around the midpoint and following. Go to... Revelation 16. Look at verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. This is at the end of the second half of the tribulation period. It poured out his bowl, at the great river, his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they're like de demons, demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings from the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. If you go look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, God's going to bring an army from the north, most likely, possibly Russia. He's also going to bring an army from the east. And what did the prophecy tell us here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 44? This Antichrist is going to hear rumors about the north and the east coming, and he's going to gather for a great battle. Oh, by the way, what happens to him in that great battle? He's defeated, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, as we wrap up tonight, I'm going to take you through three more passages of Scripture that are in Revelation. I don't have time to get into it in greater detail. Again, if you want to get into this, you've got to go to a study that I've taught on Revelation or sign up for our cruise, because we're going to be studying Revelation on our cruise coming up next year. But even though Scripture tells us that the Antichrist will come back to life after having been killed at some point, we're going to show you some of these, causing the world to worship him. By the way, 
is he trying to copy Jesus or what? He's going to be killed in some way, and it's going to be a clear mortal wound, and he's going to come back to life. And he's going to cause the world to worship him because he's come back to life. Ultimately, he will be killed with no one to help. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Look at verses 3, 11, 12, 14, and 15. Revelation 13, starting in verse 3. One of its, its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound, by the way, a mortal wound means it killed you. Its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Jump down to verse 11. You can't fix a mortal wound with a Band-Aid, by the way. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. Look at verses 14 and 15. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, this false prophet deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Go to Revelation 19. Look at verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, before I go any further... This guy's coming on a white horse, but I think it's kind of clear this is not the same guy that came on the white horse in Revelation 6, is it? The scripture goes out of its way to let you know this is Jesus himself. Oh, and just like the prophecy said in Isaiah 63, his robe is covered in blood. From his mouth, sorry, verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest of the slain were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Satan's not only going to be defeated, he's going to be captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. He's not even going through a judgment seat of Christ or a, or a great white throne judgment. He's going straight into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever, the scripture says. We'll get to that more next week, but look at one more passage. Go with me to Ezekiel 39. 
And tell me if this doesn't sound a little familiar compared to what we just read. Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 24. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat the flesh and drink the blood, and you shall eat the flesh of, mighty, of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, and all the fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I'll set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, listen, from that day forward and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them at the end of the battle of Gog and Magog in chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel there is a bird feast that is identical to the bird feast in Revelation 19 at the end of the battle of Armageddon, when Satan is defeated and the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. And from that point forward, Israel will know and believe that the Lord is God. So I lean toward Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog battle will happen around the midpoint, culminating in the battle of Armageddon as you put all the prophecies together. Let me just say this to you. I may be wrong on a point here or there on what is to come. But I can tell you this much, everything that we've already seen that has been fulfilled was literally fulfilled. Everything that has been prophesied will literally happen. With that in mind, should we be trying to change the world? No, we should be telling people about Jesus. Not surprised if they reject it, but do our responsibility of being his witnesses, telling people, making disciples of those who respond and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. But keep this in mind, because many of us go to churches where they teach that there's going to be this great revival and we're going to turn the world around. Listen, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus himself said that wide's the path that goes to destruction. Many go that way, narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Luke chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus himself said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. By the way, in the time of the days of Noah, the world was utterly wicked. There were very few righteous, and there was a lot of demon activity going on at the same time. Folks, I'm not saying we shouldn't tell people. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for people to be saved. We should be living as lights in these world. But don't fall prey to... If we can just get the right people in office, we can make America great again and we can, we can change this world for, for Jesus. No, it's going to get worse and worse. And there's going to become a clear distinction between those who follow God and those who don't. And between now and then, it'll behoove us all well to not only know what it says, but believe it. I love you. We'll wrap up Daniel next week. Thanks for coming.